And so today we are launching a new teaching series um, uh, and we've been kind of talking about this last week. Uh, I'm going to be looking at the church. But before we do that, I want to read to you uh, this beautiful short line from, um, is there any um, Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe fans out there? Or just general C.S. Lewis fans? Um, Great. Uh, there's this amazing line as the children kind of arrive into this new world, this snow-covered and slightly dark world that is um, ruled by a broken leader, the White Witch. And, uh, but they come across this kind of group of animals, like this uh, small minority uh, group of animals who are living in this kingdom, uh, and they are living with this expectation, and they communicate it like this. They say to the children, in the midst of the current kingdom that they are in, in the midst of the darkness and the cold, they speak of this lion, uh, this lion with a greater power that they believe in, and they say, Aslan is on the move. Aslan is on the move. And as we think about our world, yes, in mourning, but in the the backdrop uh, to Queen Elizabeth's uh, passing, our political and our economic kind of systems are creaking, the ecosystems are breaking down, millions of protesters, as we've seen even this weekend, are going to the street to kind of stand for things that they believe in, fighting against injustice. And we kind of need to ask ourselves the questions like, how are we gonna see the restoration of this world? How are we gonna see the restoration of family life in the home and outside of the home? How are we gonna see prisons cleared? How are we gonna learn to honor one another beyond our differences and our differences of opinion? How are we gonna find acceptance and affirmation in a world where we are desperately seeking it in the wrong places? Who is gonna be a voice, a living example of the hope and the peace that this world so desperately longs for? I believe that what our city, what our world nation needs is a move of God. We need to see a move of God in our lifetime. And why I want to talk about the church over these next six weeks is that I believe that the primary vehicle, the primary way that God moves, that his power is expressed and shown to others is through his people, the church as unlikely and as sometimes as kind of silly that might look in all its brokenness, all its failures, all its shortcomings, that God has chosen to reveal himself primarily through his people on mission to the world. And you know, so for thousands of years, two and a bit thousand years, as we've just sung about, we've seen political and economic systems come and go. We've seen ecosystems come and go. We've seen millions protest and fight for justice. We've felt the brokenness of pandemics and recessions and wars, but through all of that, the church has remained. The church has been and will be because it's not just any old church, it is the church of Jesus. Jesus is faithful. As uh, Queen Elizabeth described, that the church of Jesus has, um, uh, has remained through it all, seeking to live as he did. And this is how Queen Elizabeth described his life. Despite being displaced and persecuted throughout his short life, Christ's unchanging message was not one of revenge, 
or violence, but simply that we would love one another. What our city needs, therefore what your friends and your family desperately needs is a church of the way of Jesus filled with his hope, his peace, his joy, seeking a move of God together. And so what I want to do today as we look at this, uh, what it means for us to be a church of the way. I want to um, uh, pick up from where Tom beautifully teed us up. And Tom actually knows that I like golf. And he said, what I'm going to do is like kind, of, kind of get the ball ready and pop it on the tee. And then you can knock it down the fairway next week. So that's what I'm trying to do. We're going to try and avoid bunkers and rough. Um, uh, so niche uh, kind of golf jokes. That's the last one, I promise. Um, uh, we're going to look at this series, A Church of the Way. But what I want to start with uh, this morning is what is the church? What do we, un- what do we mean when we say uh, church? Building on what Tom shared last week. The Greek word used for church in the New Testament is ecclesia. This is the fusion of two words together, ek, uh, meaning out of, and klesia, which is the verb which means to call. So fused together, the word ecclesia literally means called out ones, or the ones that are called out. And in ancient Greece, an ecclesia was also known as an assembly of people for a specific purpose, like a town hall or a civic group with a certain kind of task. So in its context, it would have literally meant an assembly of called out ones, an assembly of those called out. And you know, this was like loaded language to start a movement of a creative minority within a culture that rejected the Christian claim that Jesus was king, that he rose from the grave in his resurrection. So the naming of this ecclesia was intentional. It was intentional to describe their unique identity and mission as God's assembly of called out people a countercultural, distinctive, set-apart community, not simply, simply echoing the voice of culture, but being a voice for hope, peace, justice, and his coming kingdom. And so as uh, Tom shared last week, that this uh, church, this ecclesia, was called out to be the bride, the temple, and the body of Christ. So the church is the bride of Christ who is loved by Jesus with his self-sacrificial, for better or for worse kind of marital love in sickness and in health, a faithful covenant of marriage between his church and himself. The church is the temple of God, being the specific dwelling place where the presence of God can house his glory. And the church is the body of Christ, his hands and feet, his voice, his heart towards the world around where it is. And so this, this church then and now, it's more than a kind of a gathering of individuals or particular people with a particular kind of unifying set of ideas. What this is, more uniquely, the church is the creation of a new family out of a society of individuals the creation of a new family. 
Um, after I became a Christian, uh, I was 18, um, I was going through what I would describe as quite a strong emo phase. Um, I had kind of like quite intrusive fringe, um, which impaired my visibility. My hair was getting dangerously close to my shoulder. It was very greasy all the time. And I was listening to kind of sort of like emo music. So kind of um, uh, that was kind of like forming me at the, at the time. And so the, the thought of like pondering life and death wasn't actually that alien to me. It's like, bring me the horizon. Um, that's what I was into. Um, that was like commonplace. And um, I had kind of made this decision, made this choice to start following Jesus. And um, uh, what I'd kind of thought that the main point of this decision, other than like companionship for life, which sounded great, uh, but was really like about where you go when you die. It was ultimately kind of uh, what kind of reward, what kind of bounty awaits me in this distant utopia that I don't know much about. And so I became really interested in heaven. Um, I asked the people that I was kind of going to church with, can we like do some Bible studies on heaven? Can I read some weird books? Um, uh, and kind of like start to get some pretty wacky ideas quite early on, if I'm honest, uh, about like what heaven may or may not uh, be. And, um, I became obsessed with it. And I share that because I think that for quite a lot of people, both in and outside of the church, there is this perception that the central message of the church is simply about a ticket to somewhere else. It's like a ticket to an afterlife of a, when I go, I go. When I die, I go to heaven because of what Jesus has done. And, and the access to that ticket is connected to a particular understanding of his death and his resurrection. And I believe that is a problem. I believe that that is a problem. For when the essence of the gospel is stripped down to the afterlife, or a yes, glorious, but strictly individual, personal decision of faith, we have completely missed what Jesus preached as the good news of his coming kingdom. We have missed what Jesus was all about. See, in that scenario, what we are doing is we are simply echoing the culture of self the priority of looking after number one. We lack any kind of urgency to see lives and see communities and uh, situations transformed because ultimately the world doesn't matter because it's about what we're heading to and we can privately wait for what comes next. You see, the gospel the good news of Jesus at its core is not merely the good news of a soteriological transaction, which is a very wafty way of saying getting saved. The gospel at its core is centrally about the story and victory of Jesus. The risen and enthroned Jesus is our good news. And further, the gospel has specific purposes for the healing and the renewal of this world, this earth, the world here and now today. And one of the main purposes of this victory that Jesus has achieved as we've sung about all morning is the creation of a new family. A family that transcends social and uh, racial, educational, political barriers and any other barrier that you can think of for it is a community formed by and following the way of the creator of all things, pursuing redemption and renewal for all things.
And the amazing thing about this family is that you are called to be a part of it. That you not only are called to kind of just come along and sort of be on the train and sort of hold on to your ticket, but you are called to be a part, to play your part within this new family. Ultimately, every single one of you, your voice matters. You are intrinsically important to what is happening in Jesus's church. And even though our earthly families can be painful and complicated to be a part of, the followers of the way of Jesus are called to shape something new, to shape something forged in his love, his forgiveness, his grace, and his redemption. And so therefore, you belong to church primarily to play your part in the greater story and victory of Jesus. Your primary purpose of being part of Jesus's church is to participate in his loving action towards the world. It's like a subtle change away from what you can get out of it away from what makes you feel good, away from really what you feel like. Rather, the primary reason to be part of a community is not for you, it's for Jesus and therefore others. It's just that Jesus is beautifully kind and he heals us in the process. As our focus becomes on him and his story and his redemption, it's not like we wither away and kind of waste ourselves into a life of service. I saw this beautiful reflection. Uh, some people kind of critiquing like, gosh, the, the queen has been like captive to a life of service. She totally didn't see it like that. She saw that as her freedom, her purpose, and her calling it wasn't a gritted teeth service. It was a faithful belonging to something bigger than herself. We get to, in this process of playing our part in the story and victory of Jesus, we discover who we are as children of God. We discover our God-given identity. We discover the gift and joy of having an abundance of siblings to encourage and equip us. We discover the joy of having a purpose in his name. This family is not just a family for itself. We don't just care about those who are in. Rather, we are the church of the way. It's the creation of a new family, but we are also given a new purpose in the world. It's not just a church, it's the church of the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus is to love your neighbor. Leslie Newbegin, a theologian, theologian, uh, and um, a, a different kind of theologian, so you wouldn't get it, um, uh, and philosopher said this, how is it possible that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? I am suggesting that the only answer, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. Hermeneutics is just the study of the text's meaning and so Newbegin is suggesting that people can only make sense of, that they can only understand the gospel as they see it lived out by his people. 
A community where the love and the grace of Jesus is present and practiced in the midst of the brokenness and pain of life. This powerful presence of God as he is glorified as we worship this deep care for others and compassion towards the outsider. It not only gives light and power to the gospel, but it attracts others towards it. As Queen Elizabeth said herself, to be believed, it must be seen. I believe that this is why the writer of Hebrews stresses, do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. That's not just like a make sure you go to church. This is Paul's kind of vision and kind of reminder of what a church of the way is really about because when you stop gathering, by definition, you stop being the family of the ecclesia, the assembly of called out ones. For when we stop gathering, our witness to the world stops. A sight, the visibility of the gospel stops. He believed in it. Jesus believed in it so strongly that he wedded himself to his church for its well-being and flourishing, the bride of Christ, so that the followers of the way of Jesus are called to love what he loves as we become more like him. And so as Jesus loves his church, we are called to love the same with all its flaws and failings. And so that is why We are, over the next few weeks, going to spend time talking about the church of the way. As crazy as it might sometimes seem to us that in its brokenness and disappointment that this family, this family of Jesus, God has put his faith in. He could have chosen any way to reveal himself, but primarily he chooses to reveal himself through people like you and me. And so we're going to look at what does it mean to be a community who is deeply loving and serving sacrificially all for the glory of God as a church of the way of Jesus. And so um, just by way of, just because some people like plans, this is mainly for Hannah. Um, uh, She's the planner. um, I'm the improviser. Um, And so uh, on the screen here, this is what we're going to be doing over the next six weeks. We're going to be looking at a church that delights Like the chief purpose and calling of his followers is worship. The church in his image, firstly, spiritual formation in an age of distraction and comparison. And then secondly, a church in his image, our perfect family and all of its flaws. A church in his name, voicing and living the kingdom in a secular age and a church of joyful generosity, a family of abundance in a time of scarcity. There is so much uh, more that we could say than simply those few short talks, and we've already covered a lot today, but let me try and summarize um, in a simple image that I hope will help throughout these next few weeks and also in your journey as you follow Jesus. What we are talking about, his church, is a family that follow the way of Jesus together. So it is a family that learns to be with Jesus. Therefore, giving our adoration in praise and worship. It's a family that learns how to become like Jesus, 
formed in his image, living in and out the way of Jesus, and then doing the things that Jesus did as we go on mission towards his beloved world together. So each of our talks uh, will major in on one of these uh, dimensions of uh, a church that is apprenticing itself to the way of Jesus. That was my introduction. You ready for the actual talk? (laughs) Jokes, it's gonna be short. Um, uh, So for today, uh, what I'd love to do is we're gonna look at um, a short little kind of encounter in scripture. We'll be familiar to some of you, I'm sure. Uh, I wanna offer a short reflection um, of what I feel like God's spoken to me about over the summer. Uh, so we're gonna go to Acts 9. It's gonna come up on the screen here behind me. We're gonna do one to nine, and we're gonna jump ahead to uh, 17. And the scene is that Paul, uh, uh, who is called Saul at this point, uh, is on the hunt to bring down this new church of the way. And he has this unique encounter, and we read this. Uh, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go to the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand to Damascus and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. We then jump to Verse 17, in between this, the Lord appears to one of his followers, Ananias, and he says, go and pray for Paul. And Ananias was like, isn't that the guy that's trying to kill us? I'm okay. And he's like, no, trust me. And because Ananias is far more faithful and courageous than you and I, uh, we get to verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Um, This summer, I was uh, fortunate fortunate enough uh, to fly to Canada, uh, where Hannah is from, and we went and we visited some uh, family, and uh, I I really love flying. Um, One of the things that I love the most, um, I'm sorry if this is a difficult, maybe just like, if this is like a big kind of triggering moment for you, this analogy is not going to work, just FYI. Um, uh, but I love this moment of takeoff. There's this like beautiful anticipation uh, in the plane. Like, will it be a smooth flight? Will there be good movies? Like, will our three-year-old lick a stranger's knee again whilst they sleep? 
Will I lick and strangers knee again whilst I sleep? And then uh, there's this rush of power and energy as you are at the back of the runway. There's this rush of power and energy as you pick up speed and speed and speed and then the plane gets off the air and uh, below it starts to look like a cool model village and you start flying upwards. I particularly like uh, flying when it's grey and miserable outside. Uh, I like that because of two reasons. One, it makes me so much better about the place that I'm leaving. Because uh, like, ah, good riddance, you're having a miserable day. But two, um, there is this moment of wonder and awe that always stirs my spirit. It's this moment uh, on days like that, as you go into the clouds, sometimes it's relatively bumpy and it creates a sense of drama and suspense. And then all of a sudden there's this beautiful moment of release. When you rise above the clouds of the storm, above the miserable layer of weather, and you can see as far as the eye can see the beauty and the wonder and the awe of creation. This video will not do it justice, um, uh, because I've watched it and it's like, oh, it was so much better than that. Um, uh, But I did record uh, this moment uh, last week as we were flying out, out of the storm clouds and into this moment, this release of just endless clouds and endless sky, this jaw-dropping beauty and wonder of creation. I wonder if this is what it felt like for Paul in this moment in Acts. Something like scales fell from Paul's eyes and he could see again. This sudden explosion of light coming back into his world, color and definition all around him, his perspective and depth of field returning to him again as his eyes rise above the dark, indistinguishable clouds and into view comes clarity. What was the power that restored Paul's sight to him? After this initial encounter with Jesus, Ananias prays this, Jesus has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Paul's eyes. It was the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. That is where it all starts for Paul. His life is redefined. He goes from one who is breathing out murderous threats against the way to become one of its founding fathers. His life transformed. It's the same presence and power of the Spirit that is present at the day of Pentecost when the church of Jesus is born. It's the power and presence of the Spirit that separates us in this room from any other gathering like this around the world where we as the church gather His presence can be found. It's what separates us from like a good social idea or club. 
It's like uh, the plane powering through the storm clouds. We need the presence and power to lift us, to empower us to see beyond the immediate, to see beyond the weary, dreary clouds and the storms and the rain, but to restore our hope and our perspective, to lift our eyes, to realize that there is a God of wonder and power and beauty that he is for his family, the church. We need that power to help us realize that there is a Lord whose mercy is new every morning. There is no caveat to that promise for our lives, that the Lord's mercy is new every morning during pandemics, during the rise of the cost of living, even during wars. We need a move of God to remind us, to to shake us up and get us out of ourselves and into his presence once again. I believe we need a fresh vision of his power, his wonder and beauty and awe. You know, I long for Jesus to come and and move with his renewing power amongst us. I want us to be a church that sees above the clouds and towards the signs of his beautiful kingdom around us. Where are the signs, the moments of breakthrough where Jesus is breaking in, in the office, in the home, on the streets? Would you wake us? to the reality of who you are, Jesus. And so as we go through uh, these next few weeks, what I'm praying for, and I would love for you to join me, I'm praying for the presence and power of the Holy Spirit to move among us. Where we've become tired, that we would learn to dream again. Where we have become silent, Lord, would we regain our voice? And where we are broken, that the Lord would come and bring his healing power, his restoring and renewing touch amongst us. Let those around us, our friends and our family, be drawn above the gray and the gloom of our world today to see the redeeming power of his grace at work amongst us, the assembly of called out ones that he loves. We need the presence and power for a move of God. Without it, we are a stationary plane at the back of the runway getting covered in rain. We need the presence and power of God. And so, St. Mary's, in a similar way to Aslan, God is on the move. God is on the move in this city and through his people, the primary vehicle for restoration and renewal. Would we be a people? Would we be a community, none of us counting ourselves out, but would we be a family who refuse to take anything less than his presence and power within us and around us in whatever we do? In Jesus' name, amen.